Hey everyone, and welcome back to Crisis of Crime. I'm your host, Rachel Means. Thank you so much for joining me here today. So last week I gave an introduction into criminology, and today I want to talk about the opposite end of that spectrum. I want to talk about victimology. So victimology is defined as the scientific study of the physical, emotional, and financial harm people endure because of illegal activities. So in this episode, I'll be discussing some of the more controversial topics of victimology, including shared responsibility, blaming, and restorative justice. Let's go ahead and jump in. So before victimology came around, explanations for crimes were all offender-based, but victimologists believe that we can paint a better picture if we look at it from both sides of the equation. So shared responsibility aims to explain why a person was victimized by a certain offender. And it's really controversial because it's essentially asking what separates victims from non-victims And is there something that victims are doing that is encouraging offenders to target them? And these questions arose from the discovery that the single biggest indicator that someone will become a victim is if they have been victimized in the past. So we see that it's a cycle of victimization. So once you've been victimized, you're more likely to be a victim again, opposed to somebody who hasn't been victimized at all. This led researchers to begin exploring the notion of shared responsibility to try to answer that question of, is there something that victims are doing that non-victims aren't doing? And so shared responsibility is like a sliding scale where a victim can have no responsibility at all for the crime that happened to them, all the way up to they can have full responsibility for the crime that happened to them. I'll give some examples so it's a little bit easier to conceptualize. So if we look at no responsibility at all for the victim, that would be a crime like someone getting shot in a drive-by shooting that was an innocent bystander. They were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, and there was nothing they could have done to avoid being victimized by that crime. This is also where I personally will put all crimes against children. And then on the opposite end of that spectrum, for full responsibility, These are only going to be the cases where someone is posing as a victim. So an example of that would be if a husband came home and told his wife that he was mugged on his way home, when in reality he actually gambled away his entire paycheck. But now he looks like a victim of this alleged crime, but he is the one that's fully responsible for losing his paycheck. Now there's a lot of middle ground here, and I'll give some examples of that. So one would be leaving your car doors unlocked and then having someone steal something out of your car. According to shared responsibility, because you didn't lock your car doors, you weren't taking all of the precautions necessary to avoid victimization. Another might be throwing away a piece of mail that had your banking account number on it, and then someone finds it and hacks into your bank account. Well, according to shared responsibility, you share some of that responsibility for not shredding that document. Another example, which is really common and I see all the time, is posting on Facebook when you leave for a trip. This can tip off burglars that you won't be at your house and that it'll be unoccupied. So if they want to come break in, they know that they won't be met with any resistance. 
And lastly, for an example where the victim is going to carry the majority of the responsibility for their victimization would be if a husband was battering his wife and she feared for her life and killed him out of self-defense. Well, technically, he is the victim of a murder, but in that situation, he's mostly responsible for his own victimization. So as I mentioned earlier, this idea of shared responsibility is very controversial because people don't like to assign any responsibility to the victims. It makes us uncomfortable. But according to shared responsibility, it is our responsibility to protect ourselves and to lessen the chances of us becoming victims by using the tools that we have, such as locks on our car doors or shredding documents or not posting on Facebook when we're leaving our houses, things like that. Now, it's not to say that doing all of these things will absolutely ensure that we don't become victims because unfortunately things do still happen, but it will statistically lower our chances of becoming one. Next, I wanna talk about blaming. So there are three different types of blaming, victim, offender, and system blaming. So we'll start with victim blaming. You've probably heard this term before. Uh, So it is different than shared responsibility because victim blaming is attempting to put full responsibility onto the victim and essentially saying that the offender is innocent in it. And one of the most common instances that I hear victim blaming is in rape cases where a woman is raped by a man and then you hear the man say, well, she was asking for it. Well, she shouldn't dress like that if she doesn't want to get raped. She shouldn't have been that drunk if she didn't want to get raped. And this idea of victim blaming is so deeply rooted in rape culture in America that even my own experience of being raped, I blamed myself for years because I was drunk, saying that it was my fault. And it it took years for me to come to terms with the fact that it wasn't. And even according to shared responsibility, like we talked about in the last section, sure, maybe I carry a little bit of that responsibility for being drunk at the age of 18 at a house party that I shouldn't have been at, but it still doesn't assign me full responsibility, which I was feeling and the society around me was trying to make me feel in that situation. Another really common place where I see victim blaming happening is in the media every time another unjust killing of an unarmed black man happens. And all the media does is dredge up every single criminal thing that person has done to try to make it look like this person had it coming. And I want to be clear, no matter what crimes someone has committed in their life, they do not deserve to die. It is not on the police to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. It is absolutely ridiculous that this is still happening and we need to change. And we cannot have that same mentality of they had it coming or she was asking for it. Now I want to talk about offender blaming, which is a more traditional view of criminology. So in offender blaming, it removes all of the responsibility from the victim and puts it all on the offender. So if you listen to my last episode where I went over criminological theories, a lot of those theories are built around offender blaming. So you can reference classical theory, strain and anime theory, differential association, and deterrence theory. And an example of offender blaming that we can see in history would be the victims of the serial killer Ted Bundy. 
Nobody is going around blaming his victims for being murdered by him. Instead, he was sentenced to the death penalty for his crimes of murdering over 30 women. And lastly, we have system blaming. And in system blaming, neither the offender or the victims are the true culprits of the crime, because it suggests that victims and offenders have been influenced by factors of socialization. And if you look back to my previous episode, I talk about theories such as the biosocial theory and broken windows theory, which suggests that the surroundings are what is influencing crime. So an example of system blaming that we see today is every time there's a mass shooting, people tend to blame the gun laws in this country or the NRA, or they turn and blame the mental health system in this country, rather than actually blaming the offender who may have just slaughtered 20 elementary school children. Our criminal justice system here in the United States has deep-seated racism, and so that means that not all blaming is equal. And that's why we're seeing armed protesters in Michigan storming the state house with automatic rifles and then trying to enter the chamber, which is illegal, being called very good people. Meanwhile, Black Lives Matter protesters are being called thugs as they exercise their First Amendment rights and then having them violated by the police. Lastly, I want to talk about restorative justice. So there are two types of justice in this country. We have restorative and retributive. Our criminal justice system today is mainly retributive, which means that it's based on punishment and not rehabilitation. And so it wasn't always this way. It used to have restorative parts in it as well, until the upper class in this country realized that they could use the criminal justice system in a way to control people through specific and general deterrence. And this dates back all the way to the time of slavery, where slavery ended, and then they used the criminal justice system to then again control brown and black populations in the United States. So yes, it does disproportionately affect people of color. So racism aside, what does the retributive justice system actually do for the victims? If we think about a court case, how is it named? Well, it's usually the state versus the offender. So, for example, the state of Virginia versus John Doe. So the victim's already taken out of it. The state is representing the victim. And it's all about winning the case. There's always a winner and there's always a loser. Somebody is found guilty or innocent, and that is it. There's no middle ground. But what does the victim actually get besides more trauma going through this system? And yes, I understand sometimes they can receive compensation, such as money or getting their insurance covered, but a lot of times a lot of that money is going to go to cover their legal fees as well. But how does this actually help the victim psychologically? So that's where we go to restorative justice. And I want to be clear that restorative justice is meant to be used for all low-level, non-violent crimes. So this isn't meant to be used for murder cases or uh, rape cases. And restorative justice is non-punitive methods of peacemaking, mediation, negotiation, and things like conflict management. And it doesn't take place in a courtroom. It doesn't use lawyers. Nobody is sworn in. Nobody's wearing fancy robes. And most importantly, there's no guilty or innocent verdicts. Rather, all parties present are looking towards the future to find solutions rather than dwelling on the past and punishment. So three examples of what restorative justice can look like are mediation, community boards, and family group conferencing. 
So for mediation, both parties will meet face-to-face and it's facilitated by a trained mediator. And the goal is to reach a mutually acceptable settlement that can heal the strained relationship. And a really good example of when this could be used is in a divorce. Historically, individuals would have to go to court. They would have to get lawyers to be able to file for divorce. But now you can use a mediator. It's going to save you a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of heartache. The next example are community boards. And this is where a local group of residents forms a community board and they meet with a victim and offender separately so they're not face-to-face. That's one of the biggest differences with community boards and mediation. There's also more people involved with a community board. And it's good for people that don't know each other that need to resolve a low-level nonviolent crime, such as vandalism. And it's great for the victim because they're able to dictate what that restitution looks like. So for an example, say a teenager tagged a man's fence. His fence now has spray paint on it. It's been vandalized. And they come to a community board, and they each are separately talking to that board, and then it comes together, and the man whose fence was vandalized says, hey, look, all I really want is for my fence to be painted clean and back to the way it was. If the guy that did this can just do that, I think we'll be fine. And so that's what restitution looks like for him. But if they had gone through the court system... He wouldn't have got that restitution. He would have had to do it himself. He would have had to hire painters or uh, go out there and actually paint it himself. Meanwhile, the offender would probably be sent to juvie or a hefty fine or something along those lines. And for the last example, we have family group conferencing. And this is especially good for juveniles because it acts like an intervention where The offender and the victim both come together and their families are there also along with mediators. And it starts with the offenders telling in their words exactly what happened and what led up to the event. And then the victim can say how the offense has impacted them. And the goal is to have the offender uh, understand what they did and accept their responsibility. The victim can then state what their desired outcome is and the group as a whole will work to solve the problem. And I cannot express how important it is to have those families present during these family group conferencings with their children to be able to solve these problems. Because if you look back to the crime theories that I talked about in the previous episode, the biosocial theory, family and home life are two of those factors that can influence someone's criminality. So having the family on board is going to help that child not offend again in the future and is going to help lower his chances of criminality. So all in all, restorative justice empowers victims by giving them direct involvement. And genuine justice requires that something is done for the victims and not just to the offenders, which the retributive justice system does today. And victims can hold offenders accountable and receive proper restitution that they feel like is justice. Now, as I mentioned before, restorative justice is not meant for all crimes. It's generally best for those nonviolent low-level offenses, such as vandalism, low-level drug charges, and shoplifting. We wouldn't want to use mediation for a murder case, obviously. But switching to using restorative justice for all nonviolent low-level offenses would clear up the courts so they would be able to focus on those more serious crimes. And not to mention, it would take off so much pressure from our public defenders who are absolutely swamped with cases to the point where they're not able to put the correct amount of time onto them and they end up pleading out for a lot of these cases, which is part of the problem that's been overwhelming our prisons. And that is something I'm going to talk about in a future episode where I talk about mass incarceration and prison reform, so stay tuned for that. 
So whether or not we use restorative justice for offenses, there's power in having the victims and the offenders communicate with each other, if that's something that the victim wants. And the benefits can be that the victim can tell the offender in their own words how the crime has affected them. And offenders are able to seek forgiveness from the victims, and the victims are able to give that forgiveness if they feel so inclined, which can be huge for providing closure for both parties. And lastly, victims can ask those troubling questions that only the offender is going to be able to answer, such as, why did you choose me? Or how did you get into my house? Or were you stalking me or following me? And that can help break that cycle of re-victimization that I talked about in the beginning of how the single biggest indicator that someone will be a victim is if they've been victimized in the past. Because honestly, there's some things that we do as people that we don't realize that we're doing. So there might be something victims are doing that they don't realize they're doing. Maybe they're always walking late at night with headphones in and that maybe that's why the offender chose them that night. So there's a growing interest for restorative justice or informal justice for a couple of reasons. And one is being that the system that we have today has failed to create social change. And what I mean by that is that the way we punish offenders is doing little to cure them from criminality. And we can see this by the fact that we still have very high recidivism rates. And I would go as far as to say that being locked up in a prison for a nonviolent low-level crime in a prison that only focuses on punishment is just perpetuating that system and causing more recidivism. And also, as I mentioned before, using restorative justice is going to take a lot off the plates of our public defenders, and they're going to be able to represent people who need them a lot better because they'll be able to focus on their cases more. And if we had a system that leaned more on rehabilitation and finding solutions between offenders and victims, we could help break that cycle of criminality and reduce the rate of recidivism. All right, folks, so that's all I wanted to talk about today with the controversial topics in victimology. I hope that you found this information useful and that it helps you think a little bit more critically about our criminal justice system and not always taking things on the news and media at face value. So what do you think about moving our criminal justice system to a restorative justice approach for all low-level and nonviolent crimes? You can let me know on Twitter. You can find me at Crisis of Crime, or you can always send me an email at crisisofcrime at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from all of you, and until next time, this has been Crisis of Crime.